we're here on the Day of Atonement, which is really one of the most interesting, most unique, and one of the most mysterious of the holy days in the Bible. I'm not pulling words out of the air. These are descriptors of the word by other people. As we mentioned in some of our literature, that the Day of Atonement is a day of fasting, not really of feasting, because we're fasting today. It's a day of afflicting our souls, and when we're fasting, we don't really feel like rejoicing. Um, You know, we don't normally rejoice when we fast, especially as we get close to the end of the fast. But I've noticed as I get older, I feel kind of like this a lot, kind of like a wilted flower. <laughs> but that's one of the joys of getting older. I was talking to Dr. Germano one time. He says, Doug, getting old is the pits. But, you know, we can also age gracefully if we realize God didn't make us to live forever, and fasting gives us a little bit of a flavor of what it can be like as we get older. It's a day of fasting, not feasting necessarily, but we can rejoice when we understand the purpose of the day and we understand the purpose of life. In preparing the sermon, I came across some very interesting information. that It's a day that is observed by all three Abrahamic faiths. I didn't realize that before. Uh, Muslims don't call it the Day of Atonement, but they do fast on this day. The Jews, the Muslims, Christians, and even some individuals in the Church of God have some very different ideas about the Day of Atonement. They have some very different ideas about the Day of Atonement, about what it means and what they do on the Day of Atonement. So in the sermon today, I want to look at some of these differences and discover why there are differences. You know, the Jews have the same Old Testament that we have, but they have some very different ideas of what to do on the Day of Atonement. You wonder, well, why is that? Because they're reading the same book. So I want to look at some of these differences and determine why the confusion exists and why different groups do different things on the Day of Atonement. You're familiar with the scripture. You maybe jot it down. But in 1 Corinthians 14:33 it says God is not the author of confusion. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace in all the churches of the saints. So when we look at the day of atonement, we see what various groups do that use the same book in some cases. Why does the confusion exist? Well, this is one of the keys. That God is not the author of confusion. So they're getting ideas from other sources. And you're also familiar with Revelation 12:9, where it says Satan has deceived the whole world. And that includes, as we will see, the Abrahamic faiths, as they are called. So what I'd like to do in the sermon today is look at some very clear examples of the confusion and also some of the consequences that result when we pick up these other ideas and proceed down that path. And then we'll be looking... <clears throat> also at the truth of what the the Day of Atonement actually means. So I've chosen as a title for the sermon today, The Good News 
about the Day of Atonement, the good news about the Day of Atonement. I think for most of us, the good news is going to be when we break our fast tonight and we have something to eat. But when we understand the purpose of the day, it's also good news when we put it in a perspective that we can understand. One of the re- one of the things that we are challenged to do every year or every day at the Holy Days, we find in Second Timothy chapter four. So you might want to turn there. Second Timothy chapter four and verse one. And this is the commission that we're given and we have to abide by as we observe the holy days. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word that was preached from the book. Be ready in season and out of season. So this is one of the holy day seasons. And as a result, we focus on the meaning of the Day of Atonement and what happens on that day. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, be, speak with conviction. Convince using the facts. Rebuke, in some cases, involves correction. Exhort, encourage, and with all long suffering and patiently. Where we, you know, some people say, why do we have to go through this again? Well, <laughs> Again, if I can appeal to our older congregation that I'm part of, we tend to forget. We tend to forget. I remember talking with a friend of mine who taught at Ambassador College years ago. Back in 1974, there was a lot of turmoil in the church at that time. I remember calling him up and talking about some things, and then maybe it was somebody else. But we were talking about the holy days, and the comment was, Oh, yeah! The Holy Day, I forgot all about that. See, when we stop keeping the Holy Days, we forget. We forget. And these were people that I was talking to that had been in the church for 20, 30 years. But they'd gone off in a different direction, stopped keeping the Holy Day, and forgot when it was held and what it was all about. So we're told here to preach the word in season and out of season. Verse 3. For the time will come, and Paul is writing in the first century, he says, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I don't want to hear that. You know, we've, we've preached that for years. I don't want to hear that. I want to hear something new. And according to their desires, but according to, the, <clears throat> but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up to themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned unto fables. Now, if we don't preach the truth regularly, people forget it, and then they'll drift off in another direction. That's one of the reasons we have the Holy Days every year. You know, I was teaching health education. One of the guidelines that we were given was make sure that you cover certain topics every year. (laughs) This is talking about physical things, because if you don't, then people forget it. So we're here to go over the basic meaning of these days. So if you'll turn back to Leviticus 23, this is where we get the ideas for the Day of Atonement. Leviticus chapter 23. And we'll notice verse 27, where it starts talking about the um, Day of Atonement. 
We should put some blocks underneath this podium. This is way down. <laughs> uh, I have to get my bifocals on so I can read my Bible. Now in verse uh, <clears throat> 27, it says, Also on the tenth day of the seventh month, ten days ago we kept the Feast of Trumpets, uh, so on the tenth day of the month, the Day of Atonement, it shall be a holy convocation. Let's just notice what we're reading here, what the Old Testament tells us. is the tenth day of the seventh month, have a holy convocation as a commanded assembly. You shall afflict your souls. And as we will see, affliction has to do with fasting. And you make an offering. You shall do no work on that day, for it is the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. And down in verse 31, you should do so no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be a Sabbath, a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your souls uh, from morning to evening. So that's what we're doing here. We're here to afflict our souls, very plain. What else is done on the Day of Atonement? We read back in Leviticus 16. And this is where kind of the interesting part comes in. We're just going to break into part of this. Leviticus 16 and verse 8, it said, Aaron shall cast lots for these two goats, that they were to be chosen. Verse 7. Let's look start there. He shall take two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for, again, depending on what translation you have, the scapegoat, or in the Hebrew, it's Azazel. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell, this would be the first goat, and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, or the Azazel, shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, and to let it go as the scapegoat or the azazel into the wilderness. So they sacrificed the first goat. They killed it, put the blood on the altar. And then we pick up the second goat down here in verse 19. It says, He shall then sprinkle some of the blood on it that is on the altar with his finger seven times and cleanse it and cast it um, and consecrate it for the uncleanliness of the children of Israel. And when, he's made an atone, and when he has made an end of the atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So here we're bringing the second goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all the transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And the goat shall bear itself on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So what we find in these verses, if we can summarize it, the first goat was killed, his blood was put on the altar, and it was to be a sacrifice for the sins. Now, it doesn't tell us who the goat is or who the goat represents in these verses. You have to go to the New Testament to find out what the symbolism means. 
You know, in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, maybe just jot that down. It talks about the festivals or shadows of things to come. They picture something that is coming in the future. Now, one of the reasons that the Jews don't understand what we do or don't do what we're doing is they don't accept the New Testament. Now, you've got to go to the New Testament. A number of scriptures talking about the blood of Jesus Christ is what forgives our sins. But I'll give you two scriptures here. In John 1, 1.29, it says, Jesus Christ is going to take away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ is going to take away the sins of the world. John 4.42 said Jesus Christ is going to be the Savior of the world. For Christians today, and we'll go into this a little bit more later, the first goat really pictures the role of Jesus Christ, that he's dying for the sins of mankind. But the confusion part, or the mysterious part, or the puzzling part, is who is the second goat? That's where the confusion comes in. We just notice from what we just read, The second goat does not die. It does not die. It's not killed. It's not a sin offering. You've got to kill something to make it an offering. So it doesn't die. It's not a sin offering. And it's also not an offering to a demon. Because Leviticus 17 verse 7 mentions that we, they were not to offer things to a demon. And yet some people try to explain, well, it's kind of like that, and maybe they're offering a sacrifice to a demon, but they're not doing that. Notice a couple of other things. It bears the sins of the people. It didn't die. It's not a sin offering. It bears or carries the sins of the people and is banished into the wilderness. Was killed, is banished into the wilderness by a fit man. So here are six things about the second goat. It doesn't die. It's not a sin offering. It's not offered to a demon. It bears the sins of the people. It's banished to the wilderness, and it's banished by a fit man. But the Old Testament doesn't explain the meaning of the second goat. It doesn't explain the meaning of the second goat, and that's why there's confusion, as we will see. That's why there's confusion, as we will see. So what I'd like to do for a little bit now in the sermon is to talk about the different ideas about the Day of Atonement and why these different ideas exist. And I want to look at a big picture, because I think sometimes when you look at the big picture, you begin to appreciate, well, here's where they got off track, and this is what we've taught, and this is why we've taught it. You know, when I was teaching a lot of times, I would say, okay, you've proven this, what what happens if you turn the whole argument around? And sometimes you oh, then it even makes more sense whenever you see uh, the opposite sides of the argument. So let's look at a couple of differences. As I mentioned, Muslims fast on the Day of Atonement. They don't call it Day of Atonement, but they fast on this period of time. Now, why would they fast on the same day that the Jews would be fasting? Where did Muhammad get his ideas? He got them from the Jews. Some of them. He got some other ideas from other places. But um, they fast on this day. It's interesting, too, though, the Islam, they teach that it's not fair to put sins on an innocent person. It's not fair to put sins on an innocent person. You know, which... You know, Jesus Christ voluntarily took the sins 
of other people on himself. But the Muslims also realize that a person must bear their own guilt. So they're partly right and partly wrong. They're partly right that each guilty person has to bear their own sin. But uh, this thing about God not being fair, putting the sins on an innocent person, God has chosen to do that, and Jesus Christ agreed to do that. Now, in the Muslim world, about 90% of Muslims are Sunni Muslims, and they observe a day of remembrance, a day of remembrance. Now, most Sunni Muslims do not live in Iraq and Iran. They're scattered over North Africa through Southeast Asia and so on. Their day of remembrance again, reflect somewhat of the Jewish influence that God saved Moses and the Israelites from Pharaoh going through the Red Sea. This is why they have a day of remembrance. So they do the same thing that Jews do. They look backwards. They remember what happened in the past. They're not looking to the future. Shia Muslims, which is about 10% of Muslims, and these are mainly the ones that live in Iraq and Iran in that particular area, Fast on this day, but it's a remembrance of the uh, martyrdom of Muhammad's great-grandson in a battle. So they're, they're fasting for different reasons. But they also describe this day as a time to draw closer to Allah, to pray, to acknowledge their personal sins, and to give to charity. Now, why would they do that? Because the Jews give to charity on this day. So they've picked up certain ideas that they've continued with. So while the Muslims fast, they, they don't understand a lot of things about today, but they do understand certain things that they should fast. But let's move to the Jews, because they keep this day as a day of atonement. They fast on this day, just like, uh, like we do. They refer to it as Yom Kippur, or the day of affliction. Uh, the Hebrew words kepar or kapur have to do with affliction, has to do with fasting. You know, we didn't look at the scripture, because um, I think I left it off my notes. But in Psalm 35 and verse 13, maybe just jot it down. It mentions that David humbled himself with prayer and fasting. Now, the word for humble there is anah in the Hebrew, A-N-A-H. And it's the same word that uh, is used in Leviticus, talking about afflicting your soul. So the reason that we afflict our souls, the way we do it, we fast on that day with prayer and fasting. And we'll talk a little bit more about why we fast Uh, a little bit later in the sermon. Let's look at how the Jews observe the Day of Atonement. It's the Day of Affliction. It's the culmination of ten days of penance. In other words, the ten days begin at trumpets. And then during the ten days from trumpets to atonement, they examine themselves. It's a time of self-examination for them. Now, we do this during the Days of Unleavened Bread and Passover. But the Jews do this during the uh, Days of Penance. It's a time of self-examination where they're to examine themselves, and then they have a little ceremony that they do 
of tossing either some pebbles or paper with their sins on it into a body of water. This is what they do. You might ask, well, why do they do that? If you jot it down, check it up later. In Micah chapter 7, verse 19, Micah 7, verse 19, it says God will view our sins basically like he'll throw them into the sea. He'll throw them away. So the Jews are doing this, uh, following instructions and following what they read in the Old Testament. So they'll find a body of water where there's a pond or a lake or a stream or a river or the ocean if they're near it to throw things into the their sins into that body of water. You notice these are things they're doing for themselves. You spot your own sins and then you throw them away and God will forgive them. Uh, For them, the Day of Atonement is a day of personal reconciliation with God. Now the Muslims also view this as a day to get closer to Allah. And the Jews are doing this to get closer to God. Uh, <clears throat> I think the belief is in the Jewish community, if you do a good job during these days of atonement, or the uh, ten days of penance, uh, your fate will be sealed for the coming year. You'll be in good shape. In other words, you've examined yourselves. Uh, you get rid of your sins, and then the next year will be really good. And they also eat sweets on the Day of Atonement, so that the next year will be sweeter <laughs> than the past year. These are traditions. These are traditions that they do. Uh, <clears throat> for the Jews, the first goat that dies on, um, or that was killed, represents the sins for the people, or being killed for the sins of the people. And this was the goat, as we read in Leviticus 16, was for the Lord. They killed the goat for the sacrifice, and that's for the Lord. The second goat, as we read, was for the scapegoat or for Azazel. Uh, It's interesting, when you read the Jewish literature, and even the Messianic literature, there are numerous ideas of what the second goat means. Numerous ideas. I want to quote from a paper entitled, The Scapegoat, The Scapegoat, Shame and Guilt. The Scapegoat, Shame, and Guilt. Look up the title. You can find it on the Internet. It was written by uh, Sir Jonathan Sack, Not McNair, but Sir Jonathan Sachs. Uh, he happens to be the chief rabbi, or has been the chief rabbi, of the United Hebrew Congregations in the Commonwealth. And he's occupied that office for over 20 years. He's also written about 25 books. So here's, here's an authority uh, on the Hebrew or on the Jewish views of the scapegoat or the, um, the second goat. In his paper, he mentions there are several theories. There are several theories about what the second goat means. So he's not saying this is what it means. This is several theories. Now you can keep track of the numbers. Number one is a place. It's a place. Geographically, a steep rocky wasteland, wasteland, and he says that uh, is where the um, uh, they took the goat and pushed it over the cliff till, till it died. But we didn't read that in Leviticus 16. It says you take them into the wasteland and you'd let them go there. It doesn't say you push them over a cliff and kill them. So that that's not biblically correct. 
So a place, that's number one. Number two, he said it could be, or some people think it's a demon or possibly Satan, and is banished into this wilderness to propitiate demonic forces. So it's kind of like an offering. Uh, but we're told in Leviticus, what was it, 17, that uh, we're not to do that, or the Jews were not, the Israelites were not to do that. He says, we blow the trumpet to confuse Satan. Well, that's not quite why the trumpet was blown. The same loves noise and confusion. <laughs> Probably the more noise, the better. Number three, the first goat eliminates... Now, this is Jonathan Sachs, and he's talking about... Uh, he says, we can be informed from uh, anthropology, studies of anthropology, not the Bible, but studies of anthropology. The first goat eliminates guilt, which is a personal issue. The first goat eliminates guilt as a personal issue. That's your sins. The second goat eliminates shame. It eliminates shame. That's more of a public thing. Now, none of this, we didn't read any of this in Leviticus 16. He says shame is more of a social issue. And I think I read something else that uh, uh, Jonathan Sachs had put together. It was kind of his own feeling that the two goats together represent our two natures. Our two natures. One is the nature that you have you want to obey God. The second one is the nature that you have that doesn't want to obey God. So that's, I think, reason number four. The point is that the Jews recognized neither goat as representing Jesus Christ because they don't accept the New Testament. And they don't accept the New Testament, therefore they don't have a clear idea of what either one of these goats represent when you boil it down. What about Messianic Jews? Because they believe in Jesus, they keep the holy days, they use the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Another article you can download called Mystery of the Scapegoat. Mystery of the Scapegoat. And this is published by a Messianic Jewish organization. And they also mention there are many different ideas about the second goat. Many different ideas about the second goat. One idea would be it's a place, a geographical place. Another idea is that it's a goat sent away. It's a goat sent away. So that's the second explanation. And this source, Messianic Jews, say that the idea of pushing the goat over the cliff and die is a rabbinical fabrication. In other words, the rabbis have come up with this idea. It's not in the Bible. But then they go on and said the two goats some people feel are Jacob and Esau. It says because they resemble each other. But when you read the accounts of Jacob and Esau, they didn't resemble each other. (laughs) One was hairy and the other one wasn't. Uh, But this is an idea that they're throwing out. It could also be two fallen angels that you can read about in Genesis chapter 6, where the angels, two angels convinced God, if you just make us, let us go back and live in history and, you know, we'll straighten things out. But they, they didn't do that. I mean, these, these are ideas that are out there. Um, they said it could represent Satan, but their preferences, and this would be theory number six or seven or eight, Their preference is that the second goat represents 
the two roles of Jesus Christ. The two roles of Jesus Christ, that he would first die for our sins, and then he would carry those sins away into the wilderness. That he would carry those sins away. Now, where they're getting this is really from mainstream Christianity, as we will see in just a minute. Mainstream Christianity, most mainstream Christians do not observe the Day of Atonement. So they're not plugged into a holy day cycle. They're not plugged into a holy day cycle. They don't fast on this day. So they're not doing the same thing that we do because it's just not their focus. They're not into holy days. I, I are one. I was, I grew up in Protestant churches. We never talked about Day of Atonement. We talked about Christmas, talked about Easter, but we didn't talk about Day of Atonement or the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Trumpets. Where does this idea come from that the two goats represent two roles of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins, then he bore our sins away outside the camp? I think I mentioned this in a sermon I gave a month or so ago. The idea comes from early church fathers, as the the Catholics would say, or early church writers. It doesn't come from the Bible. These early church writers, it mentions, and this was mentioned in one of the articles, from the epistle of Barnabas, which was later declared a, uh, an apocryphal uh, book, from Justin Martyr, who lived in the, I think, the second century, Tertullian, second century, and a fellow by the name of Origen, who lived in the third century, Now, let me just mention what these people also believed, what they also thought. They speculated at one point in time the first goat was Jesus Christ at his first coming. And then the second goat was Jesus Christ at his second coming. Origen, who lived in third century, very uh, wrote an awful lot of things. He was kind of all over the place, depending on what time period in his life you look at. Uh, He was uh, apparently from Alexandria, and they got into the allegorical explanation of Scripture. In other words, they looked for parallels and this and that and the other thing. At one point, he was saying that the uh, first goat was the thief on the cross, and then later he said it was Jesus Christ. Regarding the second goat, at one point he said it was Satan. At another point, he said it was Barabbas. And another point later in his life, it was Jesus Christ. So you take your pick. In other words, these these are all the theories that are floating around because the Old Testament doesn't define who that second goat is. It's just not there. You've got to go to the New Testament. And if you don't go to the New Testament, which the Jews don't accept, they're going to come up with, with other ideas that appear logical, but they're not scriptural. So did Jesus die for the sins of the people and then carry them away into the wilderness? Let's look at a couple of things. In Leviticus 16, we're told that the first goat was killed for the sins of the people. But you have to go to the New Testament to find out the meaning of the symbolism. In Romans 5 and verse 10, let's just go there quickly. Romans 5. 
in verse 10. And there's a number of scriptures that you can go to that say pretty much the same thing. It's for when we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we're reconciled to God by the death of Jesus Christ. Again, the Jews look at uh, the... um, Ten days of penance is a time of personal reconciliation. But the Bible says we're reconciled by his death, not by his um, being driven into the wilderness. We're reconciled by his death. Hebrews 9, verses 22 to 28, it says, Where there's no blood shed, there's no remission of sins. So for sins to be forgiven, there's got to be a sacrifice. There's got to be a death. There's got to be blood shed. And that's what happens with the first goat. When it comes to the second goat, it says in Leviticus 16, it bears the sins into a wasteland. Now, is that what Jesus did? One scripture we can go to is 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24. I grew up in Canfield, Ohio, and lived right along Route 2.24. So this is... Something I use to remember the scripture by. First Peter 2, verse 24. It mentions there, He himself, talking about Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He didn't bear them into the wilderness. He bore them on a tree. He died. He died for our sins. So you can't use this idea that uh, the second goat was Jesus Christ bearing our sins into the wilderness, because that's not what Jesus did. You know what all these sources overlook? The Jews overlook it because they don't use the New Testament. The Messianic Jews, while they use the New Testament and the Old Testament, they bought into Christian ideas or ideas by the uh, mainstream Christian Uh, churches about the two natures of Christ being the two goats. But notice in verses 1, 2, 3 of Revelation 20, and this is the source that is is either not mentioned by the Jews or the Messianic Jews or or mainstream Christians, or if they do mention it, they kind of slide off of it and say, well, uh, that's not really that important. In verse 1 of chapter 20 of Revelation, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having a key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, the devil, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into a bottomless pit, shut him up with a seal on him so that he should not deceive the nations anymore until the thousand years were finished. You know, Jesus Christ was not led off into the wilderness with a chain or a rope. Jesus Christ voluntarily gave his life for our sins. The only thing that really makes sense when you go to the New Testament to explain the old are these scriptures in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. So the New Testament gives us the key, really, 
these three verses to understanding the identity of the second goat. And again, the Jews are not going to go to this because they don't accept the New Testament. So if you're looking to the Jews to explain what these goats mean, what did Jesus tell the scribes and the Pharisees? He says, you're blind. You're blind, and the blind are leading the blind. And when people come up with ideas that are really not scriptural, they're not leading people down to the truth. They're leading them away from the truth. There was a paper published by one of the other churches of God not too long ago in a magazine claiming or basically stating that the two goats are the two natures of Jesus Christ. And this circulates around from time to time. The idea comes from not the Bible. It comes from these early church writers. These early church writers that were not part of the true church of God. So this is where these ideas come from. Let me just mention a couple arguments that are mentioned. So, well, the two goats uh, were chosen. They had to be without blemish. So it can't be the first, the second goat can't be Satan. But what do we read in Ezekiel? Chapter 28, verse 15. How was Satan created? Perfect. He was created perfect in wisdom, perfect in beauty. I think we tend to look at Satan through the eyes of artists in the Middle Ages. He's got horns, he's got a tail, and his ugly character. But if he was created beauty, or created perfect in beauty, perfect in wisdom, we also read in, uh, I think it's in 2 Corinthians 11, 14. 2 Corinthians 11, 14, that he can appear as an angel of light. He can appear like something he's not really. Another argument is that the two goats represent two birds uh, in the cleansing ceremony for lepers. And this is in Leviticus 14, verses 1 to 7. Leviticus 14, 1 to 7. That the priest was to go to a person outside the camp who had leprosy and make a decision. Uh, They've either been cured or they're over it or they're not. If they were, uh, they were to take two birds, take two birds and kill one and then let the other one go free. Let them go free. Not dragged into the wilderness. (laughs) and put in a terrible place, but to just let him go free. Look up the words. Or just let him go free or into an open field. And that's a very pleasant place. If you go hunting for pheasants or things like that, you don't go to a wasteland. <laughs> you go to a cornfield or something like that that's been cut over, and there are plenty of birds there because there's cover. It's a pleasant place to be. Uh, but to actually take a goat, and this was probably apparently during the mating season, the goat didn't want to go where it was going to be taken. So it had to be led out by a chain or a rope or something. So while these two examples, Leviticus 14 and also Leviticus 16, there are two birds and there are two goats, but they're very different things. They're very different things. But this is one of the ideas that's thrown up. Well, you know, it could be like uh, the two birds. I think the Jews have a custom, too, that sometimes they'll get a chicken or something and wave it over their head. And this is the idea of getting rid of sins. But it goes back to this, uh, this parallel in Leviticus 14. I would encourage you, if you've not done so, to read the article that Mr. Nathan has written. 
The Tale of Two Goats that's in the the, uh, Living Church News of September, October 2019, the one that's currently out. And he goes through some of the grammar and so on, and he's covering some things I'm not covering here. But we should understand these things so we're not blown away. You know, I think back to what happened in the Worldwide Church of God when it came apart back in the 70s, that uh, a lot of things were thrown out. And it was kind of the first time I heard them thrown out in that situation. They said, you know, the real gospel we read about in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Doesn't say anything about the kingdom. But this is the real gospel. Okay, read through 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is addressing the question of whether or not there is a resurrection. That's why he's not talking about the kingdom of God there. He was focused with that. Because that gospel that's described in 1 Corinthians 15 does not negate what Jesus Christ came into Galilee preaching. In Mark 1, verses 14 and 15, he came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But these young men uh, were throwing this out, that this is really the gospel. I remember talking to an individual that was in college when we were there. And during this period of time, I, I said, Joe, his name wasn't Joe. <laughs> I said, Joe, what is the gospel? He said, well, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, that's part of it. That's part of it. But it doesn't negate the gospel. Again, one of those young men gave a presentation in one of our conferences. And he was trying to show that the gospel wasn't always about the kingdom. He said, you know, there's only about three places in the New Testament where it says the gospel of the kingdom of God. He said, but look, over here it just says the gospel. Well, look at Mark 1 and look at Mark 16. When when Mark says in, in uh, chapter 16 about the gospel, he's talking about the same gospel that he was talking about in Mark chapter 1. But these things are thrown out there. When you first hear it, it sounds like, well, maybe, maybe that's right or wrong. But you've got to take the time, dig into it, and you realize, no, 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 they're playing games. They're playing word games. So we need to be able to answer these questions that come up. We need to be able to deal with these things. So what kind of conclusions do we draw, or can we draw, about atonement and the goats? Whenever we look at this big picture, we look at what the Muslims do, what the Jews do, what Messianic Jews do, what mainstream Christians do. What conclusions can we draw? The easiest one is Muslims and Jews, Messianic Jews, mainstream Christians, and even some people in Church of God have different ideas. (laughs) They have different ideas about atonement and about the goats. That's just a fact. So the question is, what is the truth? What is the truth? What is right? As I mentioned, Muslims keep the Day of Atonement, or they fast anyways, and they call the name, they call the, the day by different names. But again, they're looking backwards, and this is pretty much what the Jews do. Uh, Passover, Days of Unleavened Bread, the Jews view this as looking back and rehearsing, coming out of Egypt. It's not wrong to do that. And we do that too. But they're not looking ahead. They're not looking to the future. They're looking backwards. The Jews recognize the, uh, the first goat is killed for the sins of, of the people. 
But they don't connect it with Jesus Christ. They don't connect that with Jesus Christ, even though Christ came and died for the sins of mankind. Their focus is pretty much on um, getting rid of personal sins. Again, we do this as an exercise during Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Why? Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 5, he says, Let us keep the feast, not with the old leaven, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is apparently writing about that time during the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. In 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about the Passover, uh, the bread and the wine, and that we're to examine ourselves. So we do this self-examination during the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread. The Jews are focused on coming out of Egypt. During the Days of Atonement, they're focused on getting rid of personal sins, throwing them in, in some water. And yet the meaning of atonement is, is more than just personal issues. It's a much bigger issue, much bigger issue. Now, as I mentioned, the um, Messianic Jews take their idea of the two natures of Christ from the same first, second, and third century writers. And it would be good to read a little bit about Justin, uh, Justin Martyr and about the Epistle of Barnabas and about Origen and Tertullian, these guys were anti-Jewish, very much anti-Jewish. They didn't want anything to do with any Jewish tradition, so they just, we don't even go there. So they're very anti-Jewish. A number of these individuals also promoted the eighth-day Sabbath. We don't want to keep that old seventh day. We've got a better covenant now. We can keep the eighth day, and they have all kinds of arguments. But they're the same guys that are promoting the, uh, the, the idea that there are two natures of Christ. So they were also promoting the eighth-day Sabbath. And they ignore Revelation 20, verses 1, 2, and 3. So they're not even looking there for answers. The mainstream Christianity also rejects the holy days. They don't keep the holy days. And as a result, they lose track of the fact that God has a plan and purpose that he's working out on this earth. And if you don't understand that, that you're going to miss these things. You know, I think as Mr. Nathan points out in his article, when you look at the story flow of the book of Revelation, you look at the story flow of the book of Revelation, chapters 8 and 9 and 11 is talking about the return of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 17 and 18, talking about things going to happen when Christ returns or just before. We, you know, we talk about those things during the Feast of Trumpets. In Revelation chapter 20, it talks about Satan being bound. So Satan is bound between the period of time that Jesus Christ returns and the Feast of, of Tabernacles which is talked about in Revelation 20, verses 4 to 6. So if you just read Revelation 20 by itself, it doesn't really connect to atonement. But whenever you connect the angel that came with the chain with the fit man in, uh, in uh, Leviticus 16, you've got a connection. It gives you a, a time slot that connects scripturally. 
So when you look at that story flow, and Mr. Nathan brings this out in his article, uh, it makes sense, our explanation. So let's ask another question. What are the consequences? What are the consequences when we buy into this idea that the second goat represents the two natures of Christ? There are consequences. Number one, it eliminates Satan from the plan of God. It eliminates Satan from the plan of God. He's he's not mentioned. He's not mentioned. And yet from Genesis until Revelation, Satan plays a big role in what's happening in this world. And when you eliminate talking about him and eliminate a holy day that shows what's going to happen to him, you lose, you lose the plot. You lose the big picture. That's one consequence. A second consequence is that Jesus Christ, when you say he's the second goat, he's actually assigned the role that Satan is going to play. See, it's a deception. It's a deception. And this is the way Satan operates. He puts the blame on other people. So when you view the second goat as Jesus Christ, this is actually the role that Satan is going to play. He is the one that's going to be banished. He is the one that's going to be bound for a thousand years. But there's some other consequences. Number three is related to number two. Satan has projected his fate on Jesus Christ. Christ is not going to be bound for a thousand years. Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. And I think as Mr. Nathan points out in his article, the word wasteland there can mean a place of solitary confinement or solitude. You're going to be put in a place where you're not going to bother anybody. You're not going to deceive anybody anymore. And number four, another consequence, when we fail to understand the second goat of atonement, you lose sight of a major step in the plan of God. You literally lose sight of a major step in the plan of God, the binding of Satan before the millennium begins. So the paper that's kind of floating around and some of these other ideas, these are not little things. They're not little things. They'll they'll knock people way off course if we buy into these things. Again, you might think, well, I'm not really into theory. (laughs) I'm really not into these things. Well, you know, when I first came into the church, I wasn't either. (laughs) I was more interested in the Israelites and ancient history and stuff like that. You know, after serving in church administration for, I don't know what, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years, the issues that come up every year, several times a year, are doctrinal questions. They're doctrinal issues that somebody gets off the Internet or they hear this or they hear that. And then we have to deal with it. I wouldn't mind passing that on to somebody else. <laughs> Some of these issues have come up. We've talked about it in the Council of Elders. Remember Mr. Partying one time says, do we have to go over this again? We've gone over this about every five or ten years it comes up. But I think that's one of the reasons we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. In season and out of season, we've got to cover these issues. Otherwise, they'll get people off in different directions. Let's conclude uh, a couple more minutes here. 
I want to finish early today. It was, it is was. That's my goal. We're not there yet. You know, we read in Second Corinthians chapter two, verse eleven. Second Corinthians two eleven says, "Beware of Satan's devices." Beware of Satan's devices. He uses devices. As I just mentioned, some of these doctrinal issues come up every five or ten years or sometimes a couple times a year. But Satan has his device. He doesn't change. You know, he lied to Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, you, you, you eat that fruit and you'll be like God. Why did he bring that up? Because he wanted to be like God. He wanted to be like God. So he's passing on his ideas to them. What we were just talking about is Satan redirects. He's trying to redirect attention away from himself and his methods. He's just redirecting things. And sometimes you get into conversations. You want to ask somebody something. Didn't you tell me that? Oh, it's beautiful outside today. <laughs> you change the subject. You redirect the conversation. And what Satan is doing is trying to redirect attention away from himself and his methods so he becomes invisible. I came across a study that was actually done by somebody at Notre Dame University. It was a study of uh, sermons that were given in the Catholic Church. And the comment was made in this study, we hardly hear any sermons or hardly any sermons are given anymore about Satan. Hardly any sermons are given anymore about Satan. And it's interesting, if you think about this, we've got a booklet on the proof of the Bible. We've got a booklet on the real God. We don't have a booklet on the real Satan. <laughs> but Mr. Smith did give a program recently on the origin and aspects of Satan. If we don't talk about these things, then there's a big void. Again, you've got to be careful. You've got to be careful, though. I remember when I was first coming into the church, I was buying some books and was learning about the spirit world. And I picked up a book. It was about two or three inches thick. It was about the spirit world. And I started just leafing through the pictures. And a couple of places where this one guy was suspended in midair. And they were passing things underneath. Another guy was climbing up with a rope, but the rope was not attached to anything. There is a real spirit world. But the world doesn't think that way anymore. It's just superstition. But in doing research for the, the uh, sermon, apparently the television series has to do with the supernatural. It's been running for about 15 seasons. It's about two brothers, and they're chasing ghosts and chasing uh, demons and whatever. And the two or three of the episodes, one of the demons was named Azazel. And it turns out, he was Satan. And I got to thinking, where did this guy come up with this idea of naming one of the demons as Isaac? He was a Jew. He was the writer and the producer. He was familiar with the name because it's linked with atonement as one of the Jewish traditions. I suspected that before I started looking. I wonder if this guy's a Jew. And sure enough, he was a Jew. But he was familiar with the term. 
He was familiar with the term, and it was worked into the script. But people look at that stuff, it's not really real, it's just television program. As I mentioned, Satan is not real today to many people. I want to talk about this for just a little bit. As one of the papers I went through mentioned, that the first 1,700 years of what we call the Christian era, from Christ's birth up until now, until almost now, first 1,700 years, there was no doubt that Satan was real. As long as the Bible had an influence on our society, you go to the Puritans, they'll tell you Satan was real. Um, They were very familiar with that. But about 1700, the Enlightenment began in Europe, and it began in France, partly as a reaction against the authority of the Catholic Church. But secular thinkers began to reject ideas about Satan, ideas about uh, demons, about miracles. That's suspicious. We can't verify it scientifically, so just throw it out. Now, the attitude has come down to us today, along with the idea that um, there are no absolute values, there's no right and wrong, there's no such thing as good and evil. It's whatever you decide. That's where these ideas come from. What has been the impact of those, that thinking on us today? The New York Times did a study in 1997, so we're looking almost 30 years ago. They asked people questions. Do you believe in God? And do you believe in a real devil? This was 30 years ago. 95% of Americans said they believed in God. 62% of Americans said they did not believe in a real devil. Now, my guess is that the number that believe in God is probably going down a bit. The number that, that don't believe in the real devil is probably going up. I mean, this has been the impact on our society today. came across another book. It was entitled The Death of Satan. Now, it's not talking about Satan dying. It's talking about the idea of Satan has died. The idea that there is evil has died. This guy's a professor at Columbia University, graduated from Harvard. Uh, And the book is about just the idea of Satan in our society today. And he says it's it's the words of the word Satan and the word evil are just not part of our vocabulary today. So you're not an evil person. You have a psychological problem. (laughs) You might be mentally ill. It's all psychological. But it's not real. But from a biblical standpoint, it is very real. Uh, He makes the comments here. Sin and evil are obsolete terms today. Science has removed the need for for a religious explanation. He's not far off on some of his comments. He says, we see evil everywhere, but Satan and evil are never mentioned. It's just some problem. So we don't talk about it today. He says, we've deluded ourselves to think society can function without a sense of evil. We've deluded ourselves to think that we can function as society without a sense of evil. Again, when you take Satan out of the equation, 
that atonement has nothing to do with him. All this does is promote the idea. Well, there's no saint. We don't have to worry about that. But we do. You know, we're told in First Peter 5, I think it is, verses 6, 7, 8, that saint is an adversary. He is our adversary. He wants to destroy us. He wants to deceive us. So the lesson of atonement is basically that there is an unseen world and it focuses on Satan in that sense. But God is real. Satan is real. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Satan is the God of this world and he's blinded people. He's blinded them to the truth. He's blinded them to the fact that there is a real unseen world and that Satan really does exist. You know, the second goat that is banished by a fit man on atonement reminds us of a major step in God's plan. I'm going to skip over a section here on what does the Bible reveal about Satan. It might be good to review some of these scriptures on your own. Isaiah 14 talks about Lucifer rebelled against God. He wanted to be like God. That's what drove his rebellion. It was pride. And that's one of the reasons we fast today is so that we can be sensitive to the fact that we can all have pride that can carry us away one way or the other. Ezekiel 28, when you read the commentaries on a couple of these chapters, these are the most difficult chapters in the Bible. Because they don't want to acknowledge that it's talking about more than just the king of Tyre or the prince of Tyre. It's talking about the prince of darkness. But the commentaries don't want to go that direction. Revelation 12 says he drew a third of the angels with him, so he's a pretty convincing character. Not this ugly guy with a pitchfork and a tail and whatever, you know, making faces at each other. A very smooth operator. Very smooth operator. He's an accuser, a deceiver. John 8.44 says he's a liar and a murderer. That's where the problems in the society come from today. Ephesians 2 2, he's the prince of the power of the air. He influences thoughts and actions. And you've got to be careful where these thoughts come from. You've got to be careful where they come from. And I don't know how many times I've gotten a call, and I think Mr. Weston's probably got similar things. Somebody said, you know, I've got something God has shown me, and you, you really need to listen to me because this will make all the difference in the world for the church. No, we've heard it before. We've rejected it before. We're not going to get down that path. <clears throat> Why is Jesus coming back? Just a couple more questions here. Why is Jesus coming back? He's coming back as the Savior of the world. He's coming back as the Savior of the world. And he's also coming back to save the elect. You know, we read in Matthew 24... Verses 37, actually 22, Matthew 24, 22. Unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, Christ is coming back. That's you. That's me. That's our opportunity to be saved when he returns. We read in Matthew 24, verse 37 and 38. The conditions at the time of his return are going to be as in the days of Noah, when people were marrying and giving and marrying. I think sometimes we can read over it. Well, it's just routine. 
No, it's more than that. As in the days of Noah, go back and read Genesis chapter 6. Every thought of every person was evil, was wicked. The earth was filled with violence. Everything was corrupted. And we look and we see that today. And some people, well, it's just the way it is. You know, it's getting worse. (laughs) No, it's going to be as in the days of Noah and God intervened and destroyed that world. And that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what's coming. Why do we fast on atonement? Again, the Jews and the Muslims, it's an inward thing. You look inside, you get your act cleaned up, and then hopefully next year is going to be better because you've thrown all your sins in the water. It's more than that. Turn to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. And I'd encourage you to read the whole chapter. We don't have time to do that today. Isaiah 58, beginning in verse 1, it talks about, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. And it talks about how they love to come before God. I think devout Jews would do the same thing. Devout professing Christians would do the same thing. You, you love to go to church. We've got a lot of churches here in Charlotte. And they keep Christmas and they keep Easter and do all these things. He said, but this is not what I'm looking for. They fast, just like we're fasting. But notice in verse 6, it says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen? This is not a personal thing. This is the fast that I have chosen, to loose the bonds. Let me just read it through quickly. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, uh, that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring your house, bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, you clothe them. He said, this is the fast that I want to focus on. It's not me, myself. It's not I. It's on the world. It's outward. Let me just make a few comments and fill, fill in the blanks. Maybe as an exercise at home, put in, loose the bonds of wickedness. What does that mean? What does that mean? When you loose those bonds, you get rid of those things. It means getting rid of the sex and violence in the media today. These things are wicked. Getting rid of the corruption in business and governments. The lies. Satan's a liar. And yet people are told today... You might be a homosexual because you were born that way. That's a lie. There are environmental influences. But there's no gene. There's no gene that says you are. Young people are told you might be, if you think you're a woman and you're a man, well, you might be. There was a paper put out by a public health person up in Rhode Island that said that transsexualism is a fad. It is a fad. I think they called it a social, uh, not disease, but a social condition. The lady that produced the paper was told, you can't publish that by other faculty, by the dean of the school. It's a fad. 
said the studies show that if a girl is in a group of girls and one or two or three of them said they're transsexual, two or three other ones will say that they're transsexual too. Just a matter of time by being around people like that. Drag queen story hours. They actually have a man dressed up like a woman reading stories to children in a public library. As a number of the studies show, all this is going to do is feed the pornographic industry, which is billions of dollars, because you're pointing people in that direction. This is the wickedness that God says, this is going to stop. This will stop whenever Satan is bound. False religion. We could go into a lot of things here, but there's a, a religion in Southeast Asia, a festival called Taipusum. Taipusum is a Taoist thing called the Vegetarian Festival. It's a festival to nine emperor gods in which people go into a trance and then they cut their cheeks and stick sores through it or whatever. Go on the internet, look it up. It's gross. But what these people are doing is inviting a spirit to come in their bodies. Now, this is just one example of false religions. But people are doing that. And they believe that if they do that, they'll protect their community from these evil spirits. These are just some of the things. Undue heavy burdens. You know, the money that's spent by America on defense... Billions of dollars could be spent on education, be spent on redeveloping cities, whatever. Divorce, a burden. I've got a book in my bookshelf, 23 years, a study of 23 years of divorce. And people are told today, well, you can't get along, it's better that you separate. And yet there are consequences to the children. There are consequences to a community. This is the stuff that's going to end when Satan is bound. Let the oppressed go free. Let the immigration today is driven by wars, disasters, gang violence. When that is stopped, the immigration is going to stop. Break every yoke. They estimate there are 40 million slaves in the world today. 40 million and about 400,000 in America. They're slaves in domestic work. They're slaves in sex trade. They're slaves in a number of things. I think a big chunk of those slaves are forced marriages. Somebody from someplace else wants a wife. I'll catch you one. <laughs> Sell them to you. When slavery was going on in the South, when you bought a slave... It was equivalent of the cost of about $40,000 in our money today. Cost of a slave today that we were just talking about, about $90. And this is the world that we live in today. This is the world that's going to stop when Satan is bound. It talks about feeding the hungry. They estimate that there are over 800 million people that are starving or malnourished in the world today. The poor, about 730 million. Homeless, they estimate 100 million. When you go home tonight and you break your fast, think about you're having something to eat 
and over 800 million people will have very little to eat or nothing. Will you go home and go to bed tonight? Think about the fact that there are 100 million homeless people in the world. So when we're fasting on the Day of Atonement, God says, this is the fast that I'm concerned about. Lifting these burdens, letting the oppressed go free. Think about that. We've tended to focus, I think, in the past of being at one with God, just me, <laughs> me and God, which is not wrong. We need to be thinking about that. But God says, on the Day of Atonement, Satan's going to be bound and the whole world is going to be free. The whole world is going to have the opportunity to understand the truth. The whole world is going to have an opportunity to live right and to have food to eat and a place to live. Brethren, this is why we keep the days of atonement or the day of atonement, to focus beyond ourselves, not just on our own personal problems, but on the problems of this world and the fact that Satan is going to be bound. This day pictures that. The cause of the problem is going to be banished for a thousand years. I would encourage you to read Isaiah 25, verses 6 to 9. talks about when Christ returns. Every tear is going to be wiped away. You look at the tears that are shed today in the world because of the evils. And then read Romans chapter 8. Verses 14 through 24 talks about the whole creation groans and travail, waiting for the revelation or the revealing of the sons of God. A time we're going to have a chance to lift these burdens. The Day of Atonement, as I mentioned in the very beginning, it's interesting, it's unique, unique, (laughs) unique, and it's also a mystery to most of the world because they don't understand the dimension that is revealed in the New Testament, that Satan is actually going to be bound and all these things are eventually going to be stopped. It's a day for rejoicing even though we're fasting. I hope you have a good feast.